I don't have time to keep up with the latest fitness fads and celebrity workouts. I just need a fitness and nutrition plan that actually gets results. Caliber is a top-rated, science-based fitness program completely customized to my needs and abilities designed around my schedule. An expert personal trainer keeps me motivated so I stay consistent and see results. Get $100 off Caliber today at CaliberStrong.com podcast. That's CaliberStrong.com podcast. When you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. There's lots of painters out there and there's there's a very few artists out there. And I think that you're born an artist. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a painter, you can choose to be a painter. If you're an artist, I don't think you're really given that choice. I was drawn towards narratives of uh, social injustice, people going missing, the abuses of the church, uh, you know, prostitution in Vienna, all of these things that I've covered for the last 25 years. They're all hardwired by my social uh, interaction and upbringing and also influenced by the artists who I later discovered in my 20s. Obviously, there was an awful lot of activity, paramilitary activity in the area. People burned out of their houses um, who would have been formerly neighbours and stuff in the late 60s and early 70s. So, you know, you become aware of this. There's my friends and I, we refused to say, you know, we're, we're not going to go out, we're going to hide, we're going to... No, we wanted a, we wanted a teenage life. <laughs> So fine artist Damien Priestley, welcome first of all. We're similar generations. You were born in 1966, I was born in 59, so I have a bit of age upon you here. <laughs> um, but you were born... No one can tell, no one can tell. Oh, God, you're so charming. <laughs> um, you were born in the first decade of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, which was a civil rights movement and effectively, um, the Catholics in Northern Ireland were, really wanted equal rights uh, for housing, for jobs. Just so it was a civil rights uh, movement at that time. As a young person, when do you think you really were aware of living in what was effectively a war zone at that period? Oh, from a very, very early age, um, as you say, the uh, the Catholic community were indeed um, uh, fighting for uh, equal rights and civil rights um, and human rights, to be quite frank. Um, and as you say, that, that included uh, equal employment um, and uh, and even the, the right to vote, one man, one vote. Um, in uh, Derry, Londonderry, for instance, the Protestant community would have outweighed the Catholic community in numbers. Um, sorry, the Catholic community would have outweighed the, the Protestant in numbers quite substantially. But because of the way the voting system was set up, that it was one vote per household for the Catholic com community rather than the number of people living there, uh, they never stood a chance of actually, um, uh, you know, having their voice heard. So certainly um, the rights that they were fighting for um, were more than justified, absolutely more than justified. And I would have become aware of that from a very early age because my grandparents, um, my parents and, and my uncles and aunts were very uh, active, um, proactive in the civil rights movement and for other, other, uh, other causes that they seen fit that they should be involved in. For instance, one of the uh, first anti-Vietnam war marches in Belfast, my my 
father, my mother, and my uncles and aunts for all that, for instance. So they've always been very politically um, motivated. Uh, and uh, so as a, as, a, as, a, as a young child, certainly from the age of four um, in 1970, um, I did a lot of listening. I didn't do a lot of talking. And, and because I could, I could tell that what was being discussed in my grandmother's house or my own house was of some importance. I mightn't have understood the nuance, but it was, I knew it was important. And so I was, I was, I was aware of it from a very, very early age. I could, I could pick up on what they were saying. And uh, as I say, just even by the people who visited my grandmother's house, who were, as I say, active in the movement, I knew something was going on. So I was more than aware of that, absolutely. In the 80s, I was in my early 20s and I moved up to London. So I was a gay man. I'd come out when I was 17. Um, and I had to live through the homophobia of the 70s, of the 80s. I had to live through AIDS yep. and seeing, you know, massive friends and people that I'd just seen in clubs literally disappear and obviously die. And, and this yep. event has imbued in me the themes of my life. So I'm, you know, I'm now a screenwriter and everything I write about really effectively even though it may be a different theme, it really comes from those initial themes. So I just wondered what those initial themes for you really were when you look back from the perspective of today and say that has been the most important period of my life, which has imbued everything I have done since. Well, I mean, we're on the same page, uh, completely the same page, Steve, because uh, as I say, things were unfolding, um, certainly in the streets that I lived in. I didn't live in the worst part of Belfast, and it'd be wrong to say so. I did live in the middle of Protestant East Belfast, and obviously there was an awful lot of activity, paramilitary activity in the area. People burned out of their houses um, who would have been formerly neighbours and stuff in the late 60s and early 70s. So, you know, you become aware of this. There's, there's nothing uh, about it which is normal, but it became a normalization for us because you didn't know any different. And certainly at the age of four or five, um, my parents were very well, well read, very well educated uh, and very knowledgeable about Irish history, etc. And they did their very best and a very, very good job of, of, of advising my sister and I of exactly what was happening and exactly why it was happening. Um, but as a watershed moment, uh, the thing is, it's a little bit like uh, one of those shallow tsunamis. Um, you don't, you, everyone expects to see the 50-foot wave, but it's not the 50-foot wave, it's the 10-foot wave that just doesn't stop coming. That's about the best way I can describe it. So rather than one seminal event uh, in 1970, for instance, when I was you know, in primary school, my first year in school, rather than that, I was aware that there was people being shot and blown up around me, um, and it just didn't stop. And the fact is that it got worse and worse and worse. 1973, 1974, two of the very worst uh, years of the Troubles, um, uh, you know, in sheer numbers, if it's only down to statistics, it just seemed like as if this was never going to end. And of course, it really didn't, and it really hasn't either. I mean, it's completely different, but uh, those those things are still there. So as far as a watershed moment, there really isn't one. Um, and the, as I said, the best way I can describe it, it is, uh, it was a series of small events, uh, which were major, actually, um, which just didn't stop, didn't stop coming. 1972, for instance, the beginning of 72, when uh, Bloody Sunday happened, when the when the Paris shot the innocent civilians in the streets of uh, Derry, um, uh, it, that was quickly followed up um, uh, several months later by Bloody Friday, which I witnessed as a six-year-old from you know a park in the middle of Belfast. So, uh, as a visual spectacle, let's put it that way, that was a that was a theatre which 
um, is, is indelibly uh, seared under my retinas. Um, there were so many bombs in the space of 25 to 30 minutes. And we were on the hill at the back of the park overlooking the city. The, the sky just turned black uh, with the smoke. Um, you could smell the cordite, you could smell it. Um, you could hear the noise, you could hear the broken glass, you could hear the screams, even though you were at a, a, a maybe a half mile, three quarters of a mile distance. The sheer magnitude of that was quite unrelenting. And when we turned and left the park before the bombing had actually ceased, Early on in that evening, um, the BBC Northern Ireland uh, news compilers took the brave decision to show the footage of the firemen and the emergency services at the scene of one of the bombs, which was the most horrific, in a bus station. Uh, so if you imagine Belfast, poor working class uh, town, certainly, and the people who were using the bus station would have been. Uh, it was a bank holiday. Uh, they wouldn't have had access to cars. They were getting buses to the seaside and doing normal things for normal people. When that bomb went off, um, that was really, you know, horrendous and hideous. And the footage that the BBC elected to show that night, bravely and wisely, I think, in my opinion, showed uh, firemen shoveling up body parts with uh, snow shovels um, and putting them into plastic bags. Uh, that is something which I remember as a six-year-old seeing on the television and thinking, you know, I heard that happening and that's what happened. Um, but as I say, because of the background that I had with my folks, um, it seems strange to say that I was able to process that, but I was, uh, because the element of choice is of course all important. And when you don't have any choice, like yourself, uh, if you see people uh, dying off you, uh, dying around you uh, of AIDS, uh, HIV, um, you know that something is taking over here, something's happening. You have no way of stopping it because there doesn't seem to be any way of stopping it. It's just that slow, push and pace. Um, so there we go. That, that, that's what I would say. There wasn't one seminal thing, but certainly Bloody Friday is seared in my memory. I mean, one thing that I remember about the 80s and my experience was I'd be in a club and if someone told me that, you know, I'd ask about, have you seen so-and-so? And it was clear that uh, they said, no, they, they died. Um, my way of escaping was almost saying things like, oh, don't ruin my evening. I know that sounds really hard, but it was it was a way of dealing with it in a way by actually just pushing it aside. I just wonder what your escape, whether there was some form of escape that you were able to have during that period by either pushing it aside or finding another route. Another route for me was in music, obviously, like disappearing into music yes. and being in my own world. Yes, well, there absolutely was. Um, as, as a child, as I say, I didn't really do the whole friends thing. I was I was always a loner, and uh, you know, I was drawing from a very very early age. I would get lost in my Marvel and DC comics and slavishly copy the covers of them, and they were really my art teachers. I certainly didn't get any art teachers in school. I can tell you that. Um, but uh, so those guys, those artists, were the ones who really informed me, my choices and my education and art. Um, so that's what I would have been doing. I would have uh, locked myself in my own little fantasy world there, not not for pure escapism but just because it was something I enjoyed. Um, but in 1978, uh, the Saturday Night Fever was released and the whole disco thing, you know, really exploded, obviously, because of that. And, and there were several dance schools in Belfast, which had been running since the 1950s, to be quite frank, teaching Latin American and ballroom, et cetera. But when the disco thing took off, um, it, 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 it sparked off in most of the, uh, the dance schools. So my aunt, um, who uh, was, was, was a dancer, she loved going to the dances and stuff and the uh, ballroom and stuff. And she said, 
she knew that I didn't really mix too much. And she suggested to my folks, she said, maybe Damien would like to come down to this dance class. He might meet people, blah, blah, get them involved, see what happens. Well, I took to like a, like a buck to water and, and I, I went to dance school and I competitively danced between the ages of uh, 12 and 18, between 1978 and 1984. And that world that I had in there was very much... Uh, as you say, you weren't running away from something. You weren't trying to sort of push it away. But certainly when you were there uh, and when I was in the dance hall or, you know, in a competition, it just felt like so secure, but very exciting at the same time and totally detached from what was going on outside. The other side, the other thing about that is, too, um, that most of the people who went to my dance school were Catholic from the Catholic community. Uh, I came from a Protestant community, but I wouldn't regard myself as a religious person in, or, or a political person in that way. I, I don't like to be labeled a Protestant, you know, in, in that respect. But certainly I grew up in a very strongly Protestant area and I should not have had friends from the Catholic community. It was a, not an advice thing. It was a dangerous thing to be, to be doing. But all my friends came from there and it was the best education. Uh, not that I needed to be educated to know that they were the same as me. All working class people in that area were exactly the same. Um, they were divided by others let's put it that way so by the time I was 17 um, uh, and I'd given up the dance my friends were mostly much older than me they were they were uh, original punks back in the 70s and so they would all have been in you know at least sort of six seven years older than I uh, but I they were my friends so I, I would go to the clubs and uh, mostly get enough they were the they were the best places to go to there was never any trouble with those and um, and we would do that we would dress up and do what you were going to do in the 1980s and uh, and again, we, 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 we were heading into the Belfast City Centre, which was completely empty from six o'clock onwards, seven nights a week. And somebody might be brave enough to put on a, a night, you know, an alternative night. And we would all, very few of us, would get together, dress up, our spiky hair, our funny clothes, whatever it was we wanted to do, go there and do that. And run the gauntlet of getting there and getting home safely, which was a challenge. But when you were there... As I say, this collection of people, um, my friends and I, we refused to say, you know, we're, we're not going to go out, we're going to hide, we're going to do it. No, we wanted a, we wanted a teenage life. And um, much like yourself, you, you went out and everything else was shut out for those brief two to three hours of, uh, of enjoyment and escapism, for sure. Were you creatively supported by your parents? I know that they were politically active and you mentioned that you started drawing at four. And also in the school, the teachers weren't clearly supportive in any way so I just no. wondered if you if you, your family sort of believed in a creative existence in any way well certainly um creativity uh painting drawing um uh it, it runs in my family on both sides both my father's and my mother's um it, there's very few among the family circle in fact I think there's only one other who foolishly enough decided to try and follow that as a career path I never really seen it as having any other choice, to be quite frank. I think, you know, lots of people, uh, there's lots of painters out there and there's there's a very few artists out there. And I think that you're born an artist. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a painter, you can choose to be a painter. If you're an artist, I don't think you're really given that choice. And I know that sounds a little bit trite, um, but I, that's what I believe. I, I believe I was born one, but the support that I would have got, uh, gotten from my, my folks um, was definitely there. I was always encouraged. Um, and as I say, from a very modest working class background, they would do their very best to make sure that I had art materials when I needed them. That's absolutely for sure. Um, and uh, as I say, I went to art college. My degree was actually in fashion design and illustration. Um, and I did very well in that. I won the Designer of the Year uh, awards, etc. I won all sorts of bursaries. I moved to London, worked 
briefly and freelance there. And I was supported all the way through that. Uh, not 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 financially, um, but 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 certainly they were behind me all the way. There's no there's no question about that. I think um, in the recession of the 80s when I moved to London and there wasn't really too much work around and I ended up having to work in hospitality for a while. Uh, they probably seen that as the wise choice and if truth be told they probably hoped that I was going to stick that out and perhaps do the right thing put the roof over the head and the bread on the table that kind of argument that was never for me I, I would rather have you know I, I, I wanted to take that other path uh, come what may and let the chips fall where they did and through my own tenacity here I am so you know it is what it is going back to your teenage years I mean when I was a, a teenager at 13, I think it was 1972, and um, Bowie symbolized, I mean, it wasn't just that I loved his music and fact, the fact that there was so much creativity in what he was doing, but he also symbolized the world of belonging for me. I know you oh. mentioned Saturday Night Fever, but I wonder if there was an artist when you were a teenager that symbolized this sense of belonging, or did you have such a sense of belonging you didn't need it? Okay, so, um, you know, I actually probably admire men of uh, science more than I actually, uh, you know, uh, than, than particularly artists. I've, I've, I've done many interviews and they always sort of say, who's your favourite artist? I know you didn't phrase it that way, but um, but certainly, I, I, you know, people people who are, who are scientists come up with something which exists in nature, which uh, but, but nobody knows it's there until they discover it. So that's truly, truly new. Creativity, um, as original as somebody might be, it's never truly, truly original. Everybody always says... I was influenced by this guy, but we included, of course, you know, many, many inspirations, um, although an absolutely, uh, you know, unique voice, uh, you know, a singular voice, but still heavily influenced by lots of other things. All creativity comes from somewhere, I think. Um, but but when in my teenage years, I think the artists that I actually admired and I still do were all illustrators rather than sort of uh, heavy hitters in the art world. It wasn't until um, I became a fine artist as opposed to a designer, um, that I really started to research and have a look at the artists who uh, I admired and respected because of what they produced and where they came from. So I would say that Egon Schiele is probably one of my favorite artists, uh, Gustav Klimt, uh, Walter Sickard, Andy Warhol, those, those kind of people. The people who actually looked at the alternative side of life and the seedier side of life. Um, and because, as I say, uh, how, how I grew up, I was hardwired to looking around and thinking, there's got to be something more to art than just pure decoration. Um, it's not just something to hang on the wall that goes with your uh, your three-piece sofa, you know. It has to be something else. And as I say, because of how and where I grew up, I was drawn towards narratives of uh, social injustice, people going missing, the abuses of the church, uh, you know, prostitution in Vienna, all of these things that I've covered for the last 25 years. They're all hardwired by my social uh, interaction and upbringing, and also influenced by the artists who I later discovered in my twenties. Um, and uh, and there we are. And, and and as far as the troubles things goes, obviously I have a major exhibition coming up in Belfast, in the Belfast Exposed Gallery in November, and it's the first time I'll have shown in Belfast. I've shown globally twenty countries. I've sold the twenty-five. I've sold all sorts of work, and I've got collectors all around the place. But I have never. Sean in Belfast, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. This is the first time I'll be doing something on my childhood and and, and the troubles, and uh, I've been avoiding it for years. I didn't want anyone to think that I was kind of sensationally cashing in on the you know the tragedy that I happened to grow up in, because that would have been awful for anybody to think that. But I was talking to a journalist friend of mine who's um, a few years older, and he said, look, Damien, there's lots of uh, writers, um, there's uh, poets, there's uh, musicians, 
there's photographers, there's all sorts of people, he said, but there's very few artists, if any, who have actually told our story, the youth growing up in those times, from their perspective, but telling our combined story. If you're not going to do it, who's going to do it? We're kind of waiting on you doing it. And when, he, when he put it to me like that, this was a couple of years ago, I thought, I now have actually have sort of a duty to do it. And, and that's, why, that's why I decided to do it eventually. So how is it revisiting that trauma of your childhood? Because this exhibition, doing this exhibition is really sort of making you revisit the, the trauma of your childhood. So I just wondered what you actually gained from that and what you found by looking into the annals of your history and your family's history. Well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this in, in a word. It's a nightmare to be frank. But um, I, uh, because I, I, I keep up with current affairs worldwide, and, and um, I have a fairly, uh, I have a fairly photographic memory. Actually, uh, you, you know, when I read something, I, I tend not to forget it, and that's why I read things that are important. You, you shouldn't forget things that are important. And, and you know, I've got statistics and times and dates at my fingertips. But when I was when I was started to research, shall we say, research the troubles. It was really only for uh, a few uh, technical details um, because I remember it unfolding. It's my first-hand experience, and all I had to do was then fill in the gaps on the sort of uh, on the on the on the patchwork quilt of certain um, government, uh, you know, initiatives and times and dates of changes of parliament and things like that. That that was just to fill in the gaps. Um, so, as I say, a couple of traumatic uh, events for sure, visually and and firsthand, would have happened um, uh, to me. And you know, fully admit that I that I do suffer from PTSD because of that, etc. Um, so, because because of that, um, going back over things, uh, reading childhood diaries, which are included, some of the lines are included in some of the works that I'm doing. Um, it opened up a lot of fissures. There's no question about it. Uh, but you have to. Um, it, there's no point in you know skirting around the edges. It, you you got to go into the trench if you're going to do something like this. You've got to go into the trench, and it, it, including if it's your own if it's your own trench. I would love to say a lot of people have said suggest that it may be uh, maybe uh, cathartic. It's absolutely not. I'm afraid to say. I wish it was. Um, all I'm doing is rerunning it. I just press rewind, play, and rewind again. You know. And at the end of it, I thought, yes, it's just as bad as I remember actually. So. Um, it's uh, now uh, when I see the exhibition up, um, and there's it, there's going to be a big, big, big turnout. There's there's people planning from uh, San Francisco and from uh, uh, Los Angeles and New York and uh, Switzerland and London, and they're all flying into Belfast for this, which is absolutely marvelous. I'm humbled by the support, and I think once I'm in the room uh, with the people who will be, you know, looking at the work and examining the work. I know I'll know then that I've done the right thing for the right reason. Um, and I'm hoping that I get some sort of relief when when I see that. Your work is very layered. So when you look at a piece of your work, it will have a connection to uh, maybe the political side at the time, maybe, you know, obviously with with Northern Ireland, but the political side at the time, um, the social side, maybe there'll be another perspective from the media somehow pulled into your work um what perspective perspectives did you want to look at for this particular work and how did you want to relate it to the present because often your work really relates also from the past to the present 
Sure. I mean, uh, historical reference um, and true stories from the past is something which is very important to me. Um, but the, but the, uh, the important thing about that particular narrative is that they're recurring themes. So, for instance, when I did the Decline and Geister series about prostitutes in Vienna in 1898 and people, people trafficking, uh, those things are still happening. And so I tell um, historical uh, uh, factual accounts from a contemporary way and try to combine the two things to bring bring the awareness to people who may not be aware of it, don't want to know about it, distinctly, you know, don't care about it, whatever. And I try to do that uh, in a visually appealing way. Uh, and then when I draw the viewer in, then I slap them with the uh, with the details, you know. And, and I, I do that in most of my work. So as far as as far as the um, this particular, uh, it's called Tripwire Timeline, 1970 to 1988, a Belfast tale. This exhibition, uh, I'm I'm trying to. It's definitely my story. It's, it's my first and second hand memories. But the way I'm trying to tell it is that anybody who grew up in a, in a traumatic uh, warlike place, you know, Sarajevo or you know, Venezuela, yeah, anywhere where there's been conflict zones around, around the world, there'll be something in there that they can relate to because it's seen through the eyes of a human being, uh, you know, who, who had no choice and it was unfolding around around them and I'm trying to uh, capture that uh, essence uh, so that it's told from first hand but it's something which is open enough that they can relate to and I could see the exhibition um, uh, you know traveling to other to other places for sure um, I know that it'll resonate uh, and so long as it resonates and connects the job that's my job as an artist is, is done for sure how the media react to it um, you know the media we never really know uh, but i have lots of support um from uh, people in newspapers and television over there who are very keen and interested to see it because like i say it hasn't really been done before you said as long as it connects and resonates so what's the purpose of art in your opinion well that's it it's to make a connection it should it's not necessarily there to um and again i, I distinguish the difference between decorative art and my art to be quite frank, um, or other people who are engaging, trying to engage in the same things and the same uh, motivations that I have. I, it's, it's there to, uh, I wouldn't say um, educate at all, um, enlighten, make people think. Uh, it, it, and the connection is when you make people think or they see something in your artwork that they've experienced in a totally different way. I, I did an exhibition in uh, in Florence in 2007, and one of the pieces that I showed was from a collection called Malice in Wonderland about uh, polemic sects in America in the 1970s and 80s. And I was doing the research on that, uh, on the churches that these sort of cult leaders set up. And I discovered this chap, uh, did a bit of research on him and produced this work. It, it, it exhibited twice and sold, sold out. Um, and then just, just as I did the exhibition, the chap's name started to appear on the news. So I'd already researched him sort of six, seven months beforehand. And it was a gentleman called Warren Jeffs who set up uh, a religious cult basically in the States. Uh, he was eventually arrested. He got off, he, he went to appeal, he got arrested again, and now he's never gonna see the light of day again. Anyway, the things that happened in his church were the usual, went through the usual pattern of uh, power control and then abuse. And, uh, I did a piece called Sunday School, which was ostensibly just a picture of a, of a girl standing in front of a, a white church in New England. Um, and it just said Sunday School on it. It was as simple as that. But once you 
as you say, went through the layers of the piece and the collection, then you realized what this was. Um, it was power and control propaganda under the under the under the umbrella of religion. I have no problem with religion so long as it's not used, uh, you know, in that sort of abusive power way. And so this girl, it was it was an American college, American school in Florence, and I, I did a talk with them. And as they moved on, one girl was kind of hanging back, and and she was looking at this one piece. And I said, look, I'm here. If you any other questions, please just just ask me, you know. And uh, I, I noticed that she had tears in her eyes. And I said, are you, are you okay? And she said, that's me. And she pointed at the picture. She said, that's me. And I said, okay. I said, well, before you say another thing, I said, number one, I'm incredibly, incredibly sorry to hear that. But number two, I want you to know that I'm doing this for the right reasons. I'm not doing this collection for a sensational reason. I'm doing this story because people need to know about these things, hear about these things, be aware that these things are happening. And this is my only way of being able to do it through my art. And I'm trying to do it as sensitively as possible and as as properly as possible, if that's at all, you know, under such a heinous thing. I produced the collection and everybody who bought it had some form of connection to the pieces that I did. And, uh, and certainly this girl said, um, you know, thank you for doing this. And so that's the connection. You know, if I'd never painted another thing, uh, that would have been fine with me because that's the connection you're trying to make. That's amazing. And also that sort of gets to the point of, your work is challenging, but it's never shocking. No, because it's easy to be. It's easy to be shocking. Sensationalism is easy. You know, there's absolutely no uh, uh, coincidence that uh, the uh, the YBA show uh, in the '90s, uh, the, the Charles Saatchi's YBA show, was called Sensation. Because as far as I'm concerned, that's was that's really what it was. I, I didn't really see that personal opinion. Of course, I didn't see too much um, substance really there. It's easy to be sensationalist. You don't have to be too intelligent to be sensationalist. You can put anything together and make it sensationalist. If you want to get a, your, your artwork on the front page of a tabloid newspaper, that's easy. It's much more difficult to get it into. Uh... We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. You know. A journal of learning, put it that way. You mentioned that 25 years ago, you made the decision to become a fine artist. Um, I just wonder what the sort of cumulative things that happened before that came to that decision, how that decision came about. Well, it was certainly a shock to my wife, I'll tell you that, because she, <laughs> she, said, she said, yeah, she said, right, so uh, you're scraping a living a designer, and now you want to be a fine artist. And by the way, my wife uh, worked, uh, worked in the arts for many years, and she worked in the education department of the uh, National Gallery in London, for instance, and she worked for uh, the National Film School, and she, worked, she did cross-community projects and cross-discipline arts projects with the uh, Royal School of Music. She, she's very, and she's incredibly knowledgeable. She did her master's at the, the Royal College of Art. She's very, very knowledgeable about arts and the art world. And with that knowledge, she said, you've got to be mad. What, what's, you, you, a fine artist is, people just don't jump into that. And especially not the kind of fine art that you're talking about that you want to do. You're quite able to uh, draw anything really, you know, so it would be easy to draw the thing that the stuff that people want to buy and hang on their wall. Um, but that's just not how I'm hardwired. So 
as I say, I was working in the fashion uh, industry and I was an illustrator and I was a forecaster and forecasting was something I, I kind of took to like a duck to water because, you know, I'm, I'm a natural storyteller and I could see movements and trends and I'm interested in uh, film and literature and all those things which come into, you know, design. Uh, so that that was, that was it was easy for me and that's the problem. I, I don't like anything that's too easy for me. Um, and I love history. I love social history. I love real life stories. And I, I just thought... This is something, uh, I'm here to do something more important. Uh, and that's why I decided to be a fine artist, but not just a painter, somebody who had something to say. And I just thought I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Because if, I, if I'm interested in it, in it um, and I think it's worthwhile hearing, someone out there is bound to be interested in it too. And slowly, slowly, over the space of maybe four or five years, they found me and I found them. My biggest collector is a, a lady, a Canadian lady, and uh, she spent some of her time in the States and some of her time in, in London. And she, she got my artwork uh, immediately. She didn't buy it immediately. We became very good friends for a couple of years. And then she started to collect my work. And as I say, now she's got an enormous collection of my work. Um, but she's hardwired for human stories and for history and justice. So she found me because there wasn't anybody else doing the kind of artwork that I was doing. How much research do you have to do when you're really sort of um, creating a sort of body of work around a specific issue or specific group of people? A minimum of a month. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll plan three, uh, three collections, four collections a year. And the collection can be anywhere between uh, six pieces and, and uh, 26 pieces. You know, it can be, the collection could be, the number is dictated by me telling every facet of the story and getting it out there to make sure that I haven't dropped the ball anywhere, to be quite frank. But some, some stories are much simpler than others and they don't require too many, too many pieces to get, get the story across and the narrative across. But certainly the research um, is really dependent on how, just how complicated the story is. So the minimum amount of research I'll do is a month. I'll read everything I can. I'll go online, I'll do. So one of the first things I did was uh, Missing Series 1 back in 1999. And so I went on the uh, you know FBI sites and all those kind of things, the ones that the public could access, and got all the statistics. And it was I went down a rabbit hole. I, I was that research took me close to six months. And as I was doing the research, the images were forming in my head because that's the way I work. I don't do preliminary sketches. I don't mess about. I, it all gets finished in here, and then I've just got to get it out. That sounds like easy but it's not um but it's almost like an exorcism i've got it in here and i just needed to get it get it out of me you know and, it, and then once it's done those facts and figures stay in there because of my memory but the artwork is done and I, I can shut the book on that um not forget about the importance of it and occasionally i'll go back and revisit it and try try to do it from a different angle but it's a minimum of a month and sometimes up to six months research Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One thing that I find really fascinating about today and sort of irritating in a way because if I write a screenplay and I talk to a producer, the, and um, the character that I've written, let's say the main character I've written is a gay man, they will say, well, what sort of what gay actor would you like to play that gay man? Now, in the terms of your artwork, one area that you covered is the civil rights movement in America, the black civil rights movement in America. And, yeah. and you're a white guy. So how? Um, how are you received? 
because of being from a different community. Now, I completely understand. I can write about anything, I believe. An actor can play any of the roles that I write. I mean, that's my belief. But I just want to know from you how you're received in this current climate, where it's almost like you have to be part of a community to even write about a community. Uh, there's no question. Again, we're completely on the same page as, uh, as uh, you know, what you're saying there. Um, and uh, I wasn't sure how it would be received or how I would be received. The artwork I knew would be received, um, you know, as well as it was ever going to be received. But once they found out who had painted it, uh, blue eyed, white, blonde, you know, Irish, whatever, uh, that's the, that's, that's the uh, spanner in the work potential. And so the litmus test for that was actually um, a magazine called Rare Magazine based in San Francisco, rebranded last year as Trura, T-R-O-O-R-A, Trura Magazine. And the lady behind that, the CEO was a lady called uh, Lauren Tristan um, Cunningham and a lovely lady from uh, Haiti originally. And she spotted my artwork and a chap who lives locally to me here uh, had done a couple of photographs of me and, and, and she, she did a small feature. And then I was doing the I Am Not collection, seeing the civil rights movement, seeing through the eyes of James Baldwin and, uh, and John Lewis and people like that. And when she seen the research I was doing and the artwork I was doing, she was all automatically hooked. But the first thing, of course, that, that she was sort of asking and um, was exactly the question you have asked. And so she said, do you want to do a live, uh, a, live, a live interview with me? She didn't prep me. She didn't tell me what she was going to ask me. And with such a sensitive, important and volatile subject, um, you know, I, she put me through, through, the, through, through the ringer. And I, I, I said what I had to say. And it was incredibly well received. She had lots of messages of support. Um, she had people uh, leaving her voicemails and tears after the interview. Um, so much so that a couple of colleges uh, in the sort of southeast, so I guess in and around Virginia, that kind of area, basically the deep south, if you're talking about the states, um, they picked up on it and used sections of the interview for their American History Month and Black History Month education. And so the answer to your question is, it seems to have been well received because at the end of the day, it's a human story. And I researched it from, I have the enviable, unenviable uh, position of having grown up in trauma, conflict and division and bigotry and hatred. And I experienced it when I even lived in London because the bombing campaign was still in London, going on in London, as you very well know, in the late eighties when I moved. And when they heard my accent, they assumed that I must be, you know, a terrorist because I came from Northern Ireland and I was treated like an outsider. And I also think that when you take it back to the 40s, 50s and 60s and the signs which were in the States as well as in Britain, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. There's an affinity between the Irish and the black community, regardless of where they are. And it's because of hundreds of years of oppression. And that's not me getting my violin out and looking for, you know, a handout or sympathy. It's nothing to do with that. The story that I told, I told as sympathetically as I could through the eyes of somebody who has experienced not that division, not racism, but certainly um, uh, division for no good reason. You know, we're all the same. We're all the same. That's the way I look at it. Doesn't matter what your sexual preference is. 
doesn't matter what anything is, we're all the same. You're either a good one or you're a bad one, simple as that. Um, I want to talk about the collection of work that's called East Village Artists, because it's something that obviously made a, a, a very big impression on me when I was um, looking at it. And talking about these layers, if you look at the, uh, the Keith Herring picture, you've you've got you're using the words um that were the hate words and at the same time using the words which came from the gay community to defend itself and it's a really fascinating um powerful piece because of these words when you were researching it how did you decide to sort of put those together and and make that, in a sense, the most powerful statement. Well, again, and again, the uh, East Village uh, artist collection. Um, I've always been fascinated by the uh, early hip hop movement. You know, all the way back to DJ Herc in the seventies, and you know, all the way up through uh, mid seventies and up to your African Bambara, you know, Zulu Nation, all that kind of stuff. And the creativity which was coming out of the Lower East Side and in the, uh, the Bronx and Brooklyn and stuff. You know, when the tenements were being uh, you know, bulldozed and they were being fed with drugs, you know, whether or not you believe it or not, um, I certainly do, that those areas were purposely, you know, put into severe decline. Um, you know, the arson which was there, the buildings which were being burned, the, the, the insurance money was just being paid out because in actual fact, the arsonists were doing the developer's job for them and, and they wanted to put the highway in and they wanted to do this and redevelop. And they basically destroyed that neighborhood from outside and from within. But the creativity that came from that uh, was was astounding. And I, I believe that some of the best creativity that comes comes from oppression and poverty and all of those things, you know, uh, Lower East Side, look at the bands who were playing in CBGBs, you know, it's Talking Heads, it's television, it's Blondie, it's all those things. That's that's genius to me. And it came out of those areas just because people were so passionate and create, creative, you know, you can't put a lid on creativity. And certainly the, the East, East Village artists, um, there was a movie released last year called Make Me Famous, um, which was fabulous. I, absolutely amazing. And I was in contact with the uh, two directors and I told them I was going to go ahead and do this collection. Uh, and they went, go for it. You know, this is this is this is good. I had touched on it before, but not specifically just about the artists. I looked at the musicians, etc. Um, the Keith Haring piece. I've loved Keith Haring since uh, since 1983. Um, as I say, a friend of mine from Belfast actually moved to New York temporarily in 1983 and he DJed in the dance etc. And he used to make bootleg cassettes of uh, radio stations, world famous Supreme Team, all that kind of stuff, just before Malcolm McLaren was doing Duck Rock. And he would send these tapes back to Belfast and I would listen to these things. And, and that's when the Keith Haring artwork sort of really took off. So I would be customizing people's ghetto blasters and their cassette cases and their t-shirts with the little crouching baby figure, right? I did all that, right? I did, you know, that was, that was that, that's what gave me some money when I was at school. I've always been fascinated by Keith Haring. Um, and so when I did some research on him, more research, I realized that he did these uh, sort of uh, photographic collage pieces with um, uh, almost sort of faux propaganda. And he would put a, a, like a thing about a policeman killed somebody, blah, 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 blah. You know, and he would cut out newspaper headlines and do sort of like, like almost ransom note kind of art. And this was before he was doing his graffiti. This was very early days. And he also did a thing which was almost like automatic writing poetry, where he used three or four words in repetition in different orders to 
make you sort of go into this sort of a hyp hypnotic sort of uh, brainwashing sort of message. And I know that he hated the Reagans so much because of their complete lack of regard and disdain and ignorance and behavior during the whole early days of the AIDS crisis. Hence the number on the, the, the painting that you're talking about, there's a number on there. And that's the total number of people who died on their watch of AIDS. Beyond shameful. But the words that I used at the bottom was my interpretation of his automatic poetry writing. So I come up with three or four words, you know, sex is Reagan, Reagan is death, that kind of thing. And I repeated it over and over again. That was my take on his early writing the three or four word uh, combination and technique and the fact that he despised the, uh, the Reagan so much, you know, and uh, that's why I put that there because it's not the little crouching baby figure that everybody loves uh, of Keith Haring. This is the other side of Keith Haring, the guy who, you know, really, really cared about his community uh, and did everything he could to uh, bring it to people's awareness. No, I found it absolutely amazing. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the, the sign that even I remember in, in, in the 70s in Britain, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, which would be on pubs, uh, windows and, and uh, warning you not to go in if you were one of those things. The John Lydon biography, Johnny Rotten, uh, Sex Pistols, was I think he had his biography was no Irish, no blacks, no dogs. And yeah. um, you've also done a collection which brings together the first females in punk in England's green and pleasant land. Um, yes. What brought you to that theme? Uh, well, again, um, the, the punk movement is something that I was too young for uh, originally. I mean, you know, so the Sex Pistols had played their first gig, I think in November 1975 at St. Martin's College, and they were supporting uh, Bazooka Joe, who who was originally Stuart Goddard, went on to be Adamant. Um, but effectively, you know, the punk movement, I guess, really took off uh, in 1976, certainly in London, places like Louise's and things like that. And by uh, the summer of 76, it had really properly got hold in 77. You know, everybody knows the story. Everybody knows the timeline. Um, the punk movement in Belfast, really, there was a small section of people, all people, as I say, who I, later on in life uh, became very good friends of mine. As soon as I had my 17 and 18 years in and around 1983, uh, they had all already lived through the punk movement in Belfast, and the, the, it's 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 not it's not overhyped to say that the punk movement in Belfast was a unifying force. Uh, when Terry Hooley opened up uh, his punk night in the Harp Bar in Belfast, uh, Terry Hooley famously behind you know the likes of uh, you know Teenage Kicks and things like that uh, by the Undertones, it, it brought together kids from uh, across the religious divide into one horrible little bar, you know, not much better than CBGB's, to be quite frank, uh, you, you know, with wire cages outside it, so that, you know, wouldn't be blown up and stuff. And it was a unifying force. So I've always been fascinated by this thing of um, art movements or musical movements, which unify people in the most unlikely uh, situations. And, and punk certainly did that before it became a fashion movement. It was something much, much more. Um, and it wasn't pure nihilism either. You know, it, it, you know, the idea of no future is a great tagline, tagline for a song. Um, and it was certainly reflective of uh, the British economy at, this, at, the, at the time, you know. Um, but there was something to do with just these kids' creativity that really drew me to it. And when it came to a choice to do it for the England uh, Green and Pleasant Land, it was down to this. 
people have painted Johnny Rotten and uh, Sid Vicious uh, a, a trillion times, um, and nobody, you know, and, and Debbie Harry makes a great, uh, she's a fantastic artist, Blondie's one of my favorite singles bands of all time, and she's a very, very appealing, and I've painted her many times myself, but for this movement, I wanted to do uh, six of the early faces in the punk movement from the female perspective, because, you know, uh, punk let them in, you know, other musical genres weren't so happy, um, and there was no rules and regulations for them, uh, you know, certainly not to the extent that it would have been in perhaps pop music or rock music or whatever else. They, they, they got up and gave it a go. They got their guitars, they got their, they got their amps and just gave it a go like everybody else. And so I'm drawn to the strength of uh, strong women. And, and these, these, these ladies certainly were. And when I had the exhibition last year, uh, Gay Black um, came along, which was wonderful for me because I painted her and I got a photograph beside her and I put her on a little pin as well. That was, I was doing a, like a little free pin for the whatever exhibition and I, I put Gay Black on there. And, um, and so I've got this picture with her and the thing beside the, it was, it was a great, a great moment for me to be quite frank. And she's a lovely lady. She's a really humble, lovely lady. You know, and I was like, wow, this is so cool. You know, but, uh, and she loved the piece, which was great, you know, but, uh, that's a, that's a thing. So I did it because I'm drawn towards strong women and punk, uh, let them in, you know, when I say let them in, it's not like I said they were, you know, doing them a favor. What I'm saying is there was the platform. Yeah. You mentioned gay black, obviously gay advert of the, uh, adverts, but there's also oh, Chrissy yeah. Hind, Susie. Yep. Um, and also uh, a couple of people who were really big in the scene, but not necessarily musicians. Jordan, of course, um, and uh, so Catwoman, um, yeah. um, who John Lydon has always sort of cited as a very important person um, in that scene. Chrissy Hine uh, mentioned that scene as somewhere where sexual discrimination didn't exist in that scene, Chrissy Hine says. Um, and I think this is this is fascinating from why you were interested in that in such a scene as well, because it was these were bubbles which were way ahead of their time. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, it's that thing because it's not just about creativity uh, for the sake of it. You know, they were doing things for for a reason and, and making their own stand. Uh, and making their own point in their own way, I, you know, Sue Catwoman. I mean, my God, how how amazing looking does she still look? You know, when you look back at those photographs in '75, '76, and Louise's, and you look at them now, they're still as they're still as powerful as they were then. Uh, even more so, I think, because society's become incredibly homogeneous. But uh, you know, um, yeah, these people all there was there wasn't too many slouches among among them. You know, what I mean, they all had something to say. You know, uh, certainly that early early grouping. Um, yeah, all, all, uh, I'm all about it. You know, it was positive. It was all positive. I mean, that's something that was from the late 70s. But another um, group of work that you've done is Secret Fitzrovia, which is a completely different era, but it's also an amalgamation between Bohemians, artists, and um, rich people. It's a... It's a sort of strange society, in a sense, or, or bubble that existed. Can you tell me a bit about that? So I was, there was a, I don't enter competitions and, uh, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. I don't, I don't submit my art for those kind of things. I mean, I did many decades ago, but I, I don't tend to, you know, open call the artists. I don't really do those kind of things. But uh, a friend of mine who is a designer, uh, 
tagged me in the little post from the Fitzrovia Community Centre. And Fitzrovia, for those people who don't know where that is, it's, it's a name um, which doesn't really exist. It was kind of made up in the 1940s, 1950s for an area which is just north of Oxford Street in, in London. So south of Oxford Street in London, you have Soho, which is very, very well known. And north of Oxford Street, it's kind of mirror on the other side of the street, is an area called Fitzrovia. Um, Fitzrovia back in the day, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and, and, and data right up until today, it had this uh, bohemian attraction, you know. I have a problem with the word bohemian too, because lots of bohemians are bohemians through choice. They're faux bohemians as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm, I'm a bit sort of, uh, I don't want to sound like as if I've got a working class chip on my shoulder, but if you choose to live in poverty, you're not really, <laughs> you know, there's something wrong with that, okay? Uh, you know, let's let's form a commune and, you know, that that kind of stuff really winds me up as somebody who comes from, from, from a, a poorer background. Um, but certainly there were notables, uh, in the in the in the movement and, and living around there so this this open call from the Fitrovia community center said we're looking for a thing called hidden Fitrovia, the story behind the story things that people may have overlooked although it's been a the area's been researched ad infinitum is there something out there that you know and so i did a bit of research and i you know there was there was i really knew quite a lot about the area and of quite a few of the people who lived there. But I, in the course of my research of, of looking at the, the people who lived there between 1890 and 1920, I found this restaurant uh, and it was called uh, La Tour de Fel restaurant, the Eiffel Tower restaurant, and it was in Percy Street in the middle of in the middle of Fitzrovia. The building's still there, it's a Vietnamese restaurant there now, but at the time, um, this French restaurant opened up. And it was opened up by a guy who trained with Escoffier, for instance, in the 1890s. So he was he was a chef, but he was the owner of this restaurant. And he opened it up and he wanted to have the best fresh red French restaurant in London, outside of the Café Royal, uh, the Criterion and the Savoy. He wanted to give them an alternative. And he opened it up and it auto automatically attracted not only the wealthy, but these art bohemians and political activists. And, uh, you know, uh, if seen as ne'er-do-wells, but people who were very creative, very driven. And th he offered them something and, and they came along. And the, the meetings that, which must have happened in there, and they had an upstairs room in it, which was painted and decorated by a couple of artists from the Vorderist movement, um, and in particular, this, this lady, Helen Saunders uh, and Jessica Dismore. And they did the artwork up there. When the, art, when the, when the, when the restaurant eventually closed down, the artwork was destroyed, unfortunately, and that was quite a large section of what they produced, the Vorderist movement produced. Um, but why I was drawn to her uh, was because most of the art movements around then didn't let sort of ladies in. There was lots of literary circles, but art movements, mostly men, you know, like so many more, so many fantastic women artists over the generations, uh, over the last 150 years, which have completely written out of history. I'm very passionate about bringing these people back into the fore. And certainly the Vorderist movement was one of the few that actually said, yeah, you know, you've got something to add, you've got something to say, join up, let's go. And so I produced these three pieces of work, one on, um, on uh, Saunders, uh, Helen's, uh, one on uh, uh, Walter Sickert, and one on Nancy Cunard, three very diverse, completely different characters, all fascinating from very different backgrounds, all motivated in different ways, politically and artistically, but all have this singular story. And more importantly, they all ate in this restaurant. They were all drawn to this place like a moth to a flame.
And this guy just entertained these guys. Uh, he rarely charged them for their food and alcohol, which is why he eventually went bust. He just loved having them around and listening to the conversations, you know, so. We started this conversation about your childhood in Northern Ireland, which relates to the upcoming um, exhibition about your childhood there during the times of the, of, of the Troubles. I once read an interview with David Lynch, the famous filmmaker, and um, he had gone to a therapist and said to the therapist, if I have therapy, will I still make the type of films that I now make. Have you been to therapy? Would you consider going to therapy to deal with your childhood? Absolutely not. I, I definitely, definitely wouldn't. And it's not because I think I'm going to lose, uh, you know, that that little uh, black switch in there, that, you know, that uh, that uh, that produces that, you know, because um, it's a it's, it's a strange one that you that you say that actually, because my YouTube channel, um, it signs off the YouTube channel signs off with David Lynch actually speaking, and it's someone. I decided to call my YouTube channel uh, Behind the Curtain um, uh, just because of a childhood memory, an actual fact of listening to people talking in my grand grandmother's lounge. And I used to sit upstairs and look behind this red velvet curtain, which was actually from a cinema. And uh, and so that's why I called the thing Behind the Cinema, or Behind the Curtain. And I was listening to an interview with David Lynch, who I, who I love. I absolutely love his work. It was that whole sort of dark narrative, you know, the, the, you know, the seemingly normal, what's going on behind the closed doors. And... He said, he said in this interview, and he's got a red curtain behind him, just you know, completely coincidentally. And he said, uh, "I've got a, I've got a question here from someone called Damien." I, I was, I, I was, my jaw went down because obviously not me, right? And he said, uh, "Damien wants to know what goes on behind the curtain." And he says, "Well, Damien, you know, that's for kind of me to know, right?" And I, when I was listening to this, I, I'd already put my YouTube channel up, and I went, "Oh my God, I, this is, this is, this, that's, that's fate, right?" So I love David Lynch, number one. But I'm quite surprised to hear that he thought if he went to therapist that he might lose his uh, might lose his um, his edge. That's that's bizarre to me because I, no, I, I I've worked everything out as much as I need to work it out. <laughs> I don't need to speak to anybody about it. <laughs> but your art works it out. It does. Thank you for that. You just dug me out of a hole. <laughs> Brilliant, Damien Priestley. It's been uh, really fantastic to talk to you, and even better doing the research and uh, looking at your work and um, having it have an impact on me, which is always a great thing when an artist can have an impact on you and touch you and move you and transport you. So uh, well, thank you. You know what, thank you, thank you so much for saying that because that's what it's all about. I, you know, I'm a fine artist. It's my only uh, means of income. It has been for decades now. And so I need to sell work but I'm never gonna compromise what I do to make the sale. It's just not gonna happen. Um, and, you know, like any artist, the longer you go and the more successful you come, you know, the prices go up and it, it, that sort of narrows down uh, your collectors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the connection is still there. You know, people who collected my artwork 20 years ago are still actively watching and asking me for prints of, of originals if they can't afford them, et cetera. They're still heavily invested. And, and people say, where do you get your ideas from? Sadly, uh, there's all too many injustices out there. I'm never going to run out of ideas because there's too many things need to be addressed. And, and that's that. But, but certainly from yourself, I, I'm glad it's making a connection and I'm glad that you, that you see something in there. And uh, that's my job done. Brilliant. I'm going to press pause. Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find 
all the podcast interviews, and here is where you can connect. At Sleep Outfitters Outlet, great sleep is a big deal. Save 40 to 60% every day on every Sealy, Stearns & Foster, and Tempur-Pedic. Queens as low as 249 Customer exchanges, closeouts, and floor samples. Inventory changes daily, so come in for your dream deal today. With no credit needed financing, expert advice, and up to 60% off retail, it's never been easier to get the sleep and savings you deserve. Go to sleepoutfittersoutlet.com for financing details and to find a store near you.